Hebrews chapter 11, as we continue in this series, The Life of Faith, we'll be running into Abraham once again, as Abraham emerges from the pages of Scripture as really the father of faith and the father of the faithful and a great example of faith throughout the Bible. And here we have the vignette of Abraham being willing to give Isaac to the Lord. I invite you guys later on to come and see the painting that our artist has done for today. He's really done a tremendous job at capturing the pain in the face of Abraham and Isaac. You understand that Isaac would have done this willingly. He easily could have overpowered Abraham, who was over 100 years old at this time. He carried the wood up the hill. He was a young, healthy man. He had to do this willingly as his father led. And there's tears in both of their eyes. And as we see Father Abraham seen at the beckoning of the angel of the Lord, the ram stuck in the thicket, there is a simultaneous mixture of pain and relief on his face that is, I think, unimaginable to most of us. And it says in verse 17 of Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received Isaac back as a type. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this series, The Life of Faith. We thank you for the things that you've been teaching us the things that you have by grace been building into our lives and simultaneously purging out of our lives. Lord, we understand that in Scripture you've issued a clarion call that the righteous shall live by faith and not by sight. And yet we confess that we're so given to sight and to what is visual and visceral and tangible. But really, Lord, we're here in church today wanting to be more spiritual, wanting to be more surrendered to you, wanting to be more yielded, to the person of Jesus Christ, to the plan of the Father, to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're asking that today you would help us. The Holy Spirit, you would not only teach us, but you would enable us to live lives of faith. We say together today that we need your help. We're very aware of our shortcomings and our failures. But we want to live triumphant lives of faith in Jesus Christ and by grace. And so help us, Lord. Help me to communicate your truths in a way that is faithful to Scripture and glorifying to Christ. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my brothers and sisters, what we want to zero in on today is that little line in verse 17, the beginning of it that says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Calling to mind once again the flow of the chapter that has started with Abel, who was faith-worshipping, Enoch, who was faith walking, Noah, who was faith working, Abraham, a while ago, was faith willing, Sarah was faith waiting, and Abraham here is faith well tried. Faith well tried, meaning faith tested, faith proved. And what we're going to see in our story today is that Abraham really would be well tried, tested to the limits, and ultimately proved. He had already been tried and tested previously by God when he was called to leave his home and journey to a land of which he knew not that the Lord would show him. 
He was previously tested and well-tried when he was waiting on the promise of God for the son Isaac for some 25 years. But this would be the greatest test of faith of all in Abraham's life. Abraham's faith would be tried, tested, and stretched beyond imagination. And Genesis 22 gives us the full story of what went down. And we'll just look at the first two verses right now. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, we need to realize as we look at this historical event that Human sacrifice was not beyond the range of Abraham's experience. Historically speaking, human sacrifice was something that would have been practiced in Ur, his former home. And human sacrifice was something that was practiced among Canaanite culture in the land of Canaan, his current home. And so human sacrifice was familiar to his conceptual worldview. It wasn't really beyond him that God would ask this of him. Remember, this was before the law was given. This is before Sinai. This is before the Torah. This is before the Old Testament. He really didn't have the full revelation of God's character and God's working. He didn't have the full history of it, nor did he have the doctrine of it. And really, this was consistent with his worldview, that a deity would ask for a human sacrifice. But he also realized what it meant to give a burnt offering. And here's what it meant for an ancient Middle Easterner. It meant first that he would cut the offering's throat. Then the offering would be dismembered. And then the offering and all the body parts would be offered up in the fire and consumed by the flames completely on the altar. This is the horror that Abraham faced concerning his son, his promised son, Isaac, who was a miracle child. And inevitably, the sensitive Christian and even non-Christian heart asks this, how could God be so cruel? I mean, if we're going to be honest, we all ask that question. How could God be so cruel as to ask this of Abraham, subjecting Abraham to this unbearable anguish? But wait a minute. Has not God done the same? Did not God give his only begotten son for you and I, for sinners? And should not God teach us the value some way, if even vicariously through the patriarchs, should not God teach us the value of willingly giving something up which is precious to us for righteousness sake? If we're to understand the cross, humanity has to somehow, to some degree, lay hold of that reality of sacrificing something which is precious to us for righteousness sake. And yet we are repulsed that God would ask Abraham for his only begotten son. You know why? Because we have an anthropocentric worldview and theology. 
we are horribly and fallingly man-centered. Somehow in our perverted psyches, we value Isaac and our own sons above the Son of God. It rolls off our lips as if it were nothing that God gave his only begotten son. But the moment we read that Abraham was asked to give his only begotten son, it strikes us as wrong and perverse and unfair. But was it fair that Christ went to the cross for you and I? You see, we are horribly anthropocentric in our worldview and in our theology. Man-centered, egocentric. We value ourselves in humanity above the truth of God and the reality of God and sometimes a person of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be corrected. That needs to be repented of. And when we look at what God asked of Abraham, we say, well, has not God done the same with one who is far more precious than a million Isaacs? Jesus Christ. And so with that understanding, we read it again. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so God is testing Abraham. It says there in that text, God tested him. It said it in the text here in Hebrews, God tested him. But what does it mean that God tested Abraham? And why would God test Abraham? And does God do that today? Might we be expected to be tested by God? Well, let's unpack the idea of testing. Firstly, testing has to do with faith. God tested Abraham in order to strengthen and build his faith. God tested Abraham purposefully in order to strengthen and to build his faith. In order for faith to grow, in order for faith to be strengthened and built, it must be exercised. An analogy, though an imperfect one, is our own body, our own muscles, right? Listen, if our muscles are to grow, if our muscles are to strengthen, we need to exercise them, right? If they're going to be most effective, most powerful, most useful, we all know this, though very few of us do this, we need to exercise them. The muscles don't grow and they're not quite right unless you do that. There are those anomalies, those people that just naturally have the six-pack, and the tries and the buys, and I hate them. <laughs> I hate them, hate them, hate them. I've done a million sit-ups in my life, nothing but flab and flub, wiggle and jiggle. <laughs> there are those people that just naturally are cut, and we all hate you. And there is a New Testament equivalent when it comes to faith. There is, speaking of the spiritual gifts, the gift of faith, a supernatural endowment of faith for a situation that God will give to a person where it's not necessarily exercised and built up faith, but it's just given like the person that has a six pack. But the normal thing is that faith needs to be exercised just as our bodies need to be exercised to be functioning at their best. And it was to exercise the faith of Abraham, which was already tremendous. It was to exercise the faith of Abraham that God tested him. Go to James 1 as we talk more about testing. 
James chapter 1. We're going to look at a couple of verses in James chapter 1. I want to say this though. We need to realize that testing is different from tempting. Testing and tempting are not the same thing. God does not tempt people. It says that explicitly here in James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So there's a difference between temptation and testing. We're talking about testing and not merely temptation. Temptation is designed for our failure. Temptation is presented to us to get us to fail, to get us to mess up. But testing is designed for our growth. Testing is presented to us for our strengthening and the building up of our faith, apart from, mutually exclusive from, failure. Temptation is from Satan, but testing is from God. And there is fruit and blessing that comes from testing. Look at verse 12, the previous verse. It says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, or it could be translated, pass the test. He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So again, the dichotomy, the difference between testing and tempting. But there's reward that comes when we pass the test. It says there, when having been approved, when having passed the test, stood the test, the NIV says... Then there is the promised state of being blessed. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. And blessed, very simply, can be translated happy. Happy is the person who is tested by God and who perseveres and passes the test. It will yield a good thing in his or her life. It will bring them closer to the person of Jesus Christ. It will be fruitful in their existence. And that will yield a happiness, a blessedness in daily life. It also says there that they will receive the crown of life. In the New Testament, there are a total of five crowns that are promised as rewards to believers. This is one of those five. And it has to do, I think, with promises concerning eternal life, both the quality of eternal life as we experience it now and the quantity, if you will, of eternal life as we're with God for eternity, the crown of life. But we need to realize that there are definite benefits right now in this life for persevering as we're being tested. Look up in verse 2. Verse 2 says, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren,' When you encounter various trials, that's counterintuitive. That's Christian. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness or patience. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect, meaning mature and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So here we see the benefit of being tested and passing the test in this lifetime, that he yields in our lives endurance. Steadfastness is the old school word. Patience, we might say. And you know, there's that old thing that the world says all the time, be careful if you pray for patience because you know what will happen, right? God will give you some hard time so you can try to be patient. And even though that's sort of folk theology, I think there's a little bit of truth in that. God develops patience in us through trials. And there just doesn't seem to be any shortcuts. Because you see, patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the package that is worked in and through our lives as we live a communing life with God. As we spend intimate, meaningful, relational time with the person of Jesus Christ, these things are worked in and through our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And expressly we're told that that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, patience, endurance, and steadfastness, comes to us through trial. And it yields in us a maturity. And it causes us to be in a state of our Christianity of lacking nothing, attaining to maturity of the faith, as Ephesians 4 speaks of. And so because of that, verse 2 says to consider it all joy. And again, that's counterintuitive. There's nobody that hits a really hard time in life, and there's many of us that are experiencing hard times and says, wow, awesome. Praise the Lord, sick, this is killer, this is great, everything's falling apart, I lost it all, this is unreal, yes. Nobody's saying that. That would be stupid. We're not called to do that. We're we're not called to rejoice in the trial per se. That's masochism. We're not called to rejoice in the trial. We're called to rejoice in the results that are worked in our life by the Holy Spirit of God. But see, because we live as an eschatological community, a community that exists now, but exists according to future realities, eschatology having to do with future things and end things, because we're an eschatological community living in the here and now, but according to future truths and realities, we rejoice in the present moment according to a future hope. Okay, that's how faith works. According to a future hope, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1 defines faith as. And so we're not rejoicing in the difficulty but we are rejoicing in the fact that we have a God who will work all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And therefore, we submit ourselves willfully to the testing of God and joyfully and expectantly to the testing of God because of the promised outcome, that it does a good work in our lives. Romans 5 speaks of this, and I'll read it from the New Living Translation, starting in verse 3. It says, We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. 
For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And so what we begin to understand according to scripture is that there's tremendous value in certain trials. Those trials that are allowed in our lives by God. And we who are big godders would say that nothing comes into our life lest it has first gone through the lens of God's sovereignty. I mean, that's who we are, right? We're big godders. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We've submitted ourselves to his will and to his purposes. And so when we see that he's allowing trials in our lives, not messes we've made. Ah, ah, huh. Need to draw a distinction there. Because we often make messes with our own sin and say, oh, God is testing me. He's not testing you. You're an idiot. There's a big difference between the two. And we need to realize that because if we're just an idiot making a mess, it's a different way that we approach God in his grace. It's a a different outworking of faith. We come to God then in repentance. We come to God hoping that he will repair some of the mess that we've made. We come to God saying, open up a a door of hope in the valley of trouble for me, Lord. It's different, but when it's one of those God-ordained storms like it was for the disciples when they got in the boat in Matthew 14, God said, go to the other side. Jesus Christ said that. Uh, Literally, he forced them, anakazo in the Greek, a military commanding sort of word, made them get in the boat. They said, Jesus, are you coming with us? He goes, no, boys, you're on your own on this one. They go out in the water and here comes the storm. Was that a dink? I don't think he think. That was a sovereignly designed storm to work a work in the life of the boys. And I will have you note that they had never once worshiped Jesus Christ until after they had been through that storm. They had seen many miracles, but it wasn't until they had been through great trials that they worshiped him and saw him as a son of God and God in the flesh. We cannot miss the profundity of that. And so there's a tremendous value in our faith being tested. 1 Peter 1.7 highlights this. Again, New Living Translation says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So we want our faith and our lives of faith to be genuine, to be authentic, and we want them to be strong. And the Bible's clear that that only happens through many trials. And so God in his wisdom and in his love will allow certain trials into your lives. And this will yield a faith that is more precious in this lifetime than refined gold. That's what that verse said. It's more precious than gold. Very few of us have that, that, that idea that we've really laid hold of that. The authentic, genuine, well-tried faith will get us further in this life than pure gold. The righteous shall live by faith. And our faith is made genuine like gold through the process of testing. Without testing, we don't have the opportunities to succeed and therefore grow. You see, testing forces us to make decisions, faith decisions. Testing forces us into action. 
It makes us respond to circumstances according to the wisdom of God and the word of God and the ways of God and the grace of God. It forces us into some meaningful faith action. Therefore, we get exercise. And again, it sets us up for success, not failure. And it's important to realize that Abraham's test came after substantial spiritual growth and blessing. God worked in Abraham's life the same way he works in our lives, progressively. He doesn't do it all at once. And aren't you stoked about that? Can you imagine if God revealed all your sin to you all at one time? You would die. We would die. Just die. But isn't God kind that he kind of reveals our sin progressively? You know, he reveals enough that you come to him and you repent. Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. And then you're like, cool, I'm all good now. And then he goes, well, mijo, actually, mira, look at this. And he shows us, oh, okay. And then, you know, we, we kind of, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we get victory in that area. And we're like, I'm pure gold. And he's like, well, actually. And he shows us a little more and a little more. And he's good like that. Well, not only does he do that with our sin, but he does that with our faith. He works with our faith progressively. Baby steps. He's a father. He's a kind father. And with Abraham, you know, though they were big steps, I mean, he's Abraham. It was progressive nonetheless. It was leave your home, leave your family, leave that place where you're from, go to a land of which I'll show you. Dwell in this land. Wait for the promised son. And then it was now give your son. But, but you see, God was good to do it progressively. He was building faith into his life. And the good things that God had already done and the faith lessons that Abraham had already learned set the groundwork for greater testing and greater growth. And really what did this was that process of waiting on God. Remember, we spoke about it last week. Abraham waited on God 25 years and he had some failures and some follies in that time. But nonetheless, he waited on God. And what we talked about is that though none of us like to wait because waiting feels like work, but when we're waiting on God, there's a work that is accomplished. Amen? Hello? There is a work that is accomplished when we're waiting on God. He purges things out of our hearts that ought not to be there. He fortifies or builds into our lives things that ought to be there. And I would suggest to you that only because he's been through the process of waiting on God and submitted himself to the work of God that's accomplished through waiting on God is Abraham ready to be well tested. And so to answer our questions... What does it mean that God tested Abraham? It means that God put him through a real difficult trial. Why would God do that? In order to grow his faith, develop in him greater character and greater hope to the glory of God. Does God still do that today? Absolutely. Can you expect God to do something like this in your life? You better count on it. There's no question about it. If he loves you, he will do these things in your life. God will test us, and he loves you. God does these things. It may be that right now some of you are tested. The problem is we often fail to recognize the testing. I mean, if you're anything like me, you're pretty much totally self-absorbed. And you get caught up in yourself and your own drama and how you feel and the stuff you want and your daily goings on and fun things. And so sometimes we fail to miss the tests of God. It might be that we result to or we fall back on our own ingenuity. We birth an Ishmael and think we've gotten around it for a little while. 
Or we just insulate ourselves from those difficult things by not dealing with them, cutting off relationships that God would want to use to refine us, keeping ourselves from accountability, not being in a home group, things like this. Things like this that seem to insulate us or at least cause us to miss the fact that God might be testing us for his own good and his own glory. And then sometimes it's not that we miss them. It's that we misname them. Again, we make our own messes and we call them tests. You need to be able to discern between your own mess and a test from God. That's very important. So what can we learn from both the faith and the testing of Abraham? Well, in a nutshell, this. God will sometimes test us in regards to what we value highly to make sure that we value him most. I mean, he's going to go right for it. He went right for it. He went right for the thing that Abraham valued the most, the son that he had waited on so long. And though Abraham's faith was radically tested, he came out successful. And, And there's three quick reasons why he was successful and persevering under this testing. Now, before I give them to you, I want you to remember the definition or the description of faith from Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is a conviction? To be convicted means to be firmly convinced. So faith is being firmly convinced of things we don't necessarily see, Okay? Here are three reasons why Abraham was successful in this testing. Number one, Abraham was convinced about God's goodness. Number two, Abraham was convinced about God's plan. And number three, Abraham was convinced about God's power. Go to Genesis 22 and we'll look at this quickly. Genesis 22. The first point is that Abraham was convinced about God's goodness. He was firmly convinced. He believed truly about and in God's goodness. And that made him able to do what God was calling him to do. He trusted beyond what he could see, beyond even what he could understand. He trusted that God was good. I mean, he really believed it. It wasn't a rote confession for him. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. It wasn't some stupid Christian stadium game. It was real for him. He was firmly convinced that God was good and that enabled him to do what God called him to do. Now, we need to ask ourselves, because these things pertain to our lives. How do we become convinced of God's goodness? Like Abraham was convinced of God's goodness. Well, I think there's a lot of ways, but I'll share with you one of the ways that has worked in my life. Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. When I was shaping surfboards for 12 years or so, I had some verses up in my shaping room. And this was really the primary verse that I had on the walls of my shaping room. It was up there for over a decade. I looked at it almost every single day for a decade and it radically affected my life. This was a pivotal formational verse in my life. 
taste and see that the Lord is good. Because if we're going to be honest, empirical realities, what can be tested, what can be looked at, what can be handled, doesn't always speak to us of the goodness of God. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we look around in the world and we go, really? I mean, really is God good? And yet the psalmist beckons us, well, why don't you taste and see? Quit asking and start tasting. So how do we taste? It means to begin to experience, to partake. And if you're going to taste something, you're going to experience it. You're ultimately going to ingest it. You're going to be involved in it. You're going to handle it. So get involved with God. Begin to handle the Word of God. And the things of God, I mean, really get involved, commingle your life with the life of Christ, which is one of the purposes of the cross. Really cultivate a meaningful, intimate love relationship with him, and you'll begin to experience him. You'll begin to taste him. And when you taste the Lord, when you experience the Lord, you will find that he is good. And you will discover his goodness is beyond what you see or what you don't see. The righteous are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And so in your own life now, if you want to develop conviction that God is good like Abraham had, taste and see that the Lord is good. Look for ways to experience God. Gee whiz, there's a really good opportunity in your Bible every day. That's a good one. There's other good opportunities in worship, in worshiping God, in various ways, in obedience to God. I mean, that's really how we experience God is we obey him. That's how we experience the the reality of the gospel is we obeyed God's call to repent. The first word that Jesus ever said in his public ministry was repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And when we obey that, we experience the goodness of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. But if we never obeyed the imperative command to repent, we never would have known that God was good. Now extrapolate that out into your daily lives. The less you obey God, the less you will experience that God is good. You may have an ethereal theological understanding, oh, God is good, I'm forgiven for that again. But you'll never really lay hold of it and be convicted of it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I know no better way than to begin to obey him in the minutia of your life as the Holy Spirit seeks to refine you. Abraham was convinced of the goodness of God and it made, get this, it made Abraham willing to obey God immediately. This is a biggie. Immediately. He was willing to obey. He was so convinced of God's goodness. We've already looked at the first two verses. Look at the third verse of Genesis 22. This is astounding. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice that. Abraham got up early in the morning. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't say, oh, I'll do it later. He was so convinced that God was good, that God's purposes were good, and that God would bring good in and through his life that he said, I'm doing this first thing in the morning. As radical as it was, he obeyed God immediately. Here's the problem with you and I. 
with you and me, excuse me. Problem with you and me is that we often believe that God is good, but we don't always believe that he's better than whatever it is we're being tempted with then whatever it is we're involved with. Yes, yes, God is good, so we want to obey. But we don't actually always believe that God is better and a better payoff, so we don't always obey right away. It's not that we don't want to obey. We want to obey. God is good. It's just that we often don't want to obey right away. St. Augustine hundreds and hundreds of years ago, experienced this when it came to sexual purity. He was struggling with sexual purity. And in his book, Confessions, he says this. He's speaking to the Lord. He says, As I prayed to you for the gift of chastity, I had even pleaded, grant me chastity and self-control, but please not yet. I was afraid that you might hear me immediately and heal me forthwith of the morbid lust which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff out. How's that for a mirror? I mean, he believed that God was good. And yeah, God is good and it'd be good for me not to be sexually immoral and to get over this lust thing. But he didn't necessarily think that God was better than the payoff of lust. Not now, God. I, I want to obey, but a little bit later. Yeah, we do that all the time. But you see, Abraham was so convinced that not only was God good, but God was better, that he was willing to obey immediately. Secondly, Abraham was convinced about God's plan. Not only was he convinced about God's goodness, he was convinced about God's plan. Again, I'll read to you from Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Now God had told Abraham that I will make you a nation and nations and that all the nations will be blessed through your descendants through Isaac. And Abraham was convinced of that plan of God given by God to Abraham in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. And it made Abraham willing to obey persistently. He was convinced of God's goodness, so he's willing to obey immediately, but he was convinced of God's plan, so he was willing to obey persistently, meaning even if the situation was prolonged and the going was tough. And is life ever like that? Things take a little longer than we think, and they're a little more difficult than we think. Look in Genesis 22, starting in verse 4. On the third day... Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but... Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. I want to suggest to you that things were getting really difficult right about now in every possible way. He got up early in the morning to obey God because he was convinced of God's goodness, so he obeyed immediately. 
But now he had to obey persistently or continually, and so he had to really be convinced of God's plan because it was getting hard. Now he's been journeying for three days. And now he comes to the area of Mount Moriah, which incidentally is the same bedrock section in Jerusalem where Christ was crucified and where the Temple Mount is. He comes to the area of Mount Moriah, and he's got to offload the wood from the donkey to get up the hill and put it on Isaac. I can only assume, because he took the wood off the donkey and put it on Isaac, that the hill was too steep for the donkey to go up. And he's got to carry up the fire. I don't know what that meant 4,000 years ago, but it was probably some drama. I mean, he's got some fire, and he's got to take it with him. It probably just wasn't like a lighter fluid and a, you know, a bick. I mean, it's probably a little harder to get this whole fire get going back then. And his son is carrying the wood and he's questioning his father. Dad, where's the lamb? I want to suggest to you that it was getting really hard to follow through with what he knew God was calling him to do. That right now, he needed perseverance and persistence in his obedience. And the only thing that allowed him to persevere was that he was absolutely convinced of God's plan. He really believed that God would make a nation and nations come forth from Isaac. He really believed that God would bless the nations through the Messiah, through his descendants. He really believed God's plan. And so he was committed fully to God's plan. We need to ask ourselves as Christians, are we committed fully to God's plan? His macro plan as it pertains to the nations and his micro plan for your life. I mean, are you committed fully to the plan of God? You see, if you're really committed to the plan of God, then you're going to persevere in your obedience. When things are difficult, you'll make it through by the grace of God for the glory of God. And that's what had to happen in Abraham's life. I shared with you sometime during the study of the last few weeks that I was working in the family surfboard business and for seven years I was doing ministry and shaping surfboards. And much of that time while God was shaping me, when I thought I was just shaping surfboards, God was convincing me that his plan was better. You see, I had a plan my whole life to shape surfboards and take over the family business. And my parents had the same plan. That was the plan. And I was stoked on that plan. There was nothing I wanted to be in the whole world more than a surfboard shaper. When I was shaping surfboards, I was stoked. I loved it. I dreamed about surfboards. I thought about surfboards. I rode surfboards. I made surfboards. I ate, slept, drank surfboards. I loved it. I loved that life. And I was so thankful to God that that was going to be my life. But at some point, I discovered that God had a different plan. That this was just a stop along the way. And for seven years, I was waiting on God because both the ministry and surfboard shaping were on a trajectory such that both of them could not simultaneously exist forever. There are too many demands. And so I knew in my heart that it was going to be one or another. And for seven years in my heart, though I didn't really realize it, God was convicting me, convincing me that his plan was better. Better than anything I thought possible. I didn't think there could be a better gig. God was convincing me in my intimate, quiet times with him on my face before him that his plan was better. How do we become convinced of God's plan? Try it out. Be faithful with the little things. I didn't have great faith. I tried by grace to obey. And when God gave me little things to do, here's a Bible study with six kids. I would try to be diligent with that. 
Here's a great surfer. You get to make him a surfboard. I tried to be diligent with making the surfboard and sharing the gospel with him. Whatever God gave me to do, I tried to be faithful with doing it. And in that, I discovered God's plan, number one, and number two, that God's plan is better. How do you discover God's plan and that it's better? By living it. Be faithful in the little things that God calls you to do. And then he who is faithful with the little will be entrusted with more. And then finally, Abraham was convinced about God's power. Not only was he convinced that God was good and convinced about God's plan, but he was convinced about God's power and that made him willing to obey ultimately. He obeyed immediately, he obeyed continually, and he obeys ultimately. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Some foreshadowing of Christ being crucified on that very same piece of bedrock. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing. Notice the past tense. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sandwiches on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Wow, what a promise. The promise of the Messiah, the foreshadowing of the ram caught in the thicket, of Jesus who would be the lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. And these giant things, to some degree, were dependent upon the obedience of this one man thousands of years ago. You just never know what God is going to do. And he had to obey God ultimately. Notice God said, because you have done this thing, he never actually slit the throat of Isaac, but he was going to. In his heart, it was settled. He was going to follow through on the thing that God called him to do. It was a test and God stopped him. And in stopping him, God revealed to him, I am not like the gods of the Canaanites. I will not ask from you a human sacrifice, but I myself will be draped in humanity and be sacrificed for you. I am different from the gods of the land. I am a God who gives, but now you understand to what extent I will give. I will give my only begotten son. But Abraham, in the mind of God, went all the way. Says back in Hebrews 11, by faith when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac. Offered up, is in the perfect tense in the Greek, means it was a completed past action with present results. 
in the mind of God, it was done. He offered Isaac. He gave Isaac. He surrendered Isaac. Not only was it done, but it had present results. The present results of blessing in his life and blessing among the nations. He passed the test. He made it. He obeyed immediately. He obeyed continually. And he obeyed ultimately. Why? Because he was convinced of God's goodness. He was convinced of God's plan. And he was convinced of God's power. It says in Hebrews eleven nineteen that Abraham considered that God is able to raise people from the dead. Notice what it says in verse 6. Abraham said to his young man of Genesis 22, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. We will return to you. Abraham was absolutely confident that he was coming back down Mount Moriah with Isaac. He was so convinced of God's plan that it forced him to rely upon God's power. The doctrine of resurrection had not yet been alliterated. It had not yet been given to him, but by faith and by reason, by faith and by reason, because he believed God was good and he was convinced of God's plan. He was convinced that God must have power to raise men even from the dead. After all, he was as good as dead as a hundred years old when Isaac was conceived. He thought that he would go up on that mountain and burn his son on the altar and that God would resurrect him from the ashes. And he was right. He understood the doctrine of the resurrection before it had been revealed to anyone else in humanity. It's incredible faith. I want you to notice that when it says, we will go and worship, this is the first time in the whole Bible that the word worship is ever used. It's the first time in the Bible the word worship is used. This most pivotal moment in Abraham's life came in the context of worship. People, what are we doing? Some of the most pivotal moments of clarity and profundity in our lives come in the context of worship. I love what he said in verse 8. He said, when he was asked, Where's the lamb? He said, son, God will provide for himself the lamb. You know what he's doing when he said God will provide for himself the lamb? He was saying, son, I trust God implicitly. That is without qualification. I trust God implicitly. But he was leaving room for God to be God. He didn't know how God was going to do it. He just knew God was going to do it. And he said, I trust God. I'm not leaning on my own understanding. I don't have the play-by-play. I don't have the moment-by-moment, but I've got the plan, and I've got the goodness of God, and I understand the power of God, and so I trust God without reservation. He trusted God implicitly, but he was leaving room for God to be God. How is God going to do it? I don't know. He's God. That's his problem. That's a good one. He now saw this situation as God's problem and not his own. And that is one of the benefits of obeying because when you obey, the outcome is God's problem. It's God's problem. God called you to do it. He saw this as God's problem and that God would have to resurrect his son from the dead. Again, in Hebrews eleven nineteen, 19, he considered that God is able. Do you know that word considered? Legizomai in the Greek the same root word from which we get our word logic, he considered. It means that he reckoned, he calculated, he reasoned, he thought. Listen to me, listen to me. 
This was not blind faith. This was not fideism, which is faith apart from reason. Nor was this rationalism, which is reason without faith. This was biblical faith, which is a conglomeration of the two. It was a reasoned, reckoned, calculated decision based on what he knew about God. God's character, God's plan, and God's power. And he said, it makes more sense that God would raise my son from the dead than he would go back on his plan. That's faith. It wasn't blind. It wasn't stupid. It wasn't mindless. It just depends on what you think is more reasonable, trusting God or trusting what you see. He believed the power of God was bigger than the circumstances that he faced. Faith means being sure of things we hope for and knowing that something is real even if we do not see it. Abraham passed the test. And so he goes down on record as a friend of God. James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. So again, in a nutshell, God will sometimes test us by laying his hand on that which we value highly to make sure that we value him the most. My own life, I wanted nothing more in the world than to be a surfboard shaper. I value that highly. In 1998, God put his hand on that. It took seven years for me to be convinced of God's plan, that it was better. And there was a day, and I will never forget it, there was a day where I said, Lord, I put it on the altar. Like Isaac, I put it on the altar. My own hopes, my own dreams, the things that I love, my identity, everything I ever wanted to do. God, I put it on the altar because I'm convinced that you're good, that you're better. I'm convinced of your plan, that it's better. And I'm convinced of your power, that you are able. After Jesus was resurrected, he said to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? It's weird, the Bible doesn't tell us what these are. Might have been the other disciples. Might have been the boats, the nets, his fishing equipment, his family business. Do you love me more than these? It doesn't matter what these are. The Lord was asking him, Peter, do you love me more? Elijah said to Israel on Mount Carmel, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. The apostle Paul got it. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. God tests people today. He might just put his hand on that which you love highly to make sure that you love him the most. What do you need to offer up by faith? Might be you. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 2, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, 
which is your reasonable act of worship. The one that needs to get on the altar and die might just be you, but only God knows. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to refine us. Thank you that you love us enough to build into our lives good, solid faith, perseverance, and character. And you alone know the details of our lives. And what, if anything, needs to go on the altar? And so, Holy Spirit, we trust that you'll come and minister to our hearts the goodness of plans and the power of God. And we ask that we would be a people who are yielded, surrendered, submitted to you, Lord. Help us, God. Holy Spirit, reveal. Reveal, Holy Spirit, things in our hearts that need to be dealt with. Work in us a life of faith. Prayer team is up here to your right today. Communion is here to remember what Isaac was only a foreshadow of, Christ crucified for us.